Luke chapter 19, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we pick things up in chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, and uh, in verse 28 is a record of what is known as Jesus' triumphal entry, His entry into the city of Jerusalem on the Sunday immediately before His crucifixion which would occur later in the week. And so it gives us an idea of how, uh, how tight things are becoming now, compressed these things that we're uh, studying right now as He moves uh, toward the cross. And when He had said this, giving the uh, parable of the uh, minas, uh, when He had said this, He went on ahead, going up from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, and this is the Mount of Olives that sits to the east of the city of Jerusalem, and uh, the Kidron Valley separates the two. Bethany was a familiar city uh, for Jesus, stayed there many, many times with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who were close friends of his. So as he comes to uh, Bethany now on the Mount of Olives before he crosses into Jerusalem to make his triumphal entry, he sent two of his disciples and he told them, go into the village opposite you, where you, uh, as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose the colt and bring it here to me. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing the colt? Uh, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And so here is uh, either a, a situation that has been uh, previously arranged, uh, but certainly whoever is the owner of the cult, the, the cult recognizes that Jesus is uh, the Lord. These are His disciples, and, uh, and it's time to release the cult for His purposes. And so those who were sent went their way, and they found it exactly as uh, Jesus had said to them. And as they were loosening the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosening the colt? And uh, they said, uh, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt uh, to provide something of a, a saddle or a cushion for Jesus upon the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went now making his way uh, uh, from uh, the Mount of Olives, across the uh, Brook Kidron, uh, the Kidron Valley, and then into Jerusalem. There were many that were waiting for Him there. They spread their clothes uh, on the road. We know from the other Gospels that palm branches were also being cut and thrown down uh, before Him. That's why uh, this particular uh, day that this happened, the Sunday before His crucifixion, is known as Palm Sunday. Uh, that is pulled from uh, this, uh, this account. And then as He was now drawing near the descent uh, of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that uh, they had seen Him do, and they began to praise Him. Uh, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace on earth and glory in the highest. And so uh, here they are singing 
in pronouncing Psalm 118 over Jesus. And Psalm 118 is one of the great messianic psalms of the Old Testament, an Old Testament description of the coming uh, Messiah. It is interesting to realize that as Jesus, as we see from the very beginning of His public ministry, time and time again, as He would feed the 5,000 or do a great miracle or raise somebody from the dead, that the crowd recognized Him to be the Messiah uh, based uh, uh, by virtue of His teaching, by virtue of the miracles. Remember, before Jesus comes on in the scene, the scene and John the Baptist is a forerunner before Him to point people to Jesus, there's a silence of 400 years between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's almost like God gave them all that they needed to know about the coming Messiah, and then uh, God went very, very quiet on them. So almost like a dramatic pause, so that when Jesus comes on the scene, it's like this explosion of of the Holy Spirit and of miracles, and it wasn't like something they'd gotten accustomed to in in any way. And... uh, and, and so, time and time again, they desire to make him king at that time and try to take him forcibly and make him king, and he would simply uh, go out of their midst and not allow it to happen. And continually we're told that he would do that because his day had not yet come. That was the explanation that's given to us. And yet here on this triumphal entry on the Palm Sunday before Jesus' crucifixion, He allows them to do what He had not allowed them to do for fully three and a half years. And He allows them to pronounce Him him as the King and as the King of Israel and as the Messiah of the Jewish people, the Savior of the whole world. And the reason that He did that is because His day had finally come. In Daniel chapter 9, I won't go into it tonight, I'll refer you to our study in Daniel on the Sunday evening. But God gave a prophecy to Daniel, one of the most amazing prophecies in the Old Testament, which is filled with amazing prophecies. God gave Daniel the very day that the Messiah would unveil himself to the Jewish people after a series of 69 uh, sevens uh, and, uh, and the whole thing that Daniel lays out. And so here is the day, the very day that Daniel had prophesied of the day that the Messiah would uh, declare himself to be Messiah to the entire uh, uh, Jewish nation. The day comes, and so Jesus makes this triumphal entry. One of the very interesting things about uh, Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 in giving the very day that uh, Jesus would make this triumphal entry into Jerusalem is that that prophecy is a time-sensitive prophecy. Uh, No one can come on the scene today, as the Antichrist will one day do. No one can come on the scene today and declare themselves to be the Jewish Messiah based upon the Old Testament uh, prophecies because that prophecy can't be fulfilled today. 
It was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. In other words, if Jesus is not the Messiah according to the Scriptures, then no one is the Messiah according to the Scriptures. And, and so here is Jesus making this triumphal entry, and we'll see how, heart, how his heart was broken over the fact every Jew in the world should have been in Jerusalem standing at the side of those roads and pronouncing him Messiah as he came into uh, the city of Jerusalem. What more could God do than, than give them the very day that the Messiah would make this kind of an entry and un unveil him himself? And some would, but a very comparative minority. And none of the religious leaders or religious elites uh, played any part in it. But the common people were thrilled over it. And as, as the Pharisees who were present to witness the whole thing, any religious crowd, they were quick to investigate as a threat to their, their power. And they called out to him. I mean, you talk about bad timing with these guys interrupting Jesus all of the time and all. Here he is in the middle of this prophesied triumphal entry, and they're going to begin to call on him and give him instructions to rebuke uh, his disciples from pronouncing the 118th Psalm over them because they recognize that to be a messianic psalm. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you, that if these people should keep silent, the stones themselves would immediately cry out. It almost wishes, makes you wish that people didn't uh, sing, but I'm glad that they did sing. But someone or something was going to pronounce these messianic psalms over Jesus in recognition of the fact that He is the Messiah as He made His entry into Jerusalem. And if the people weren't going to do that, Jesus said, then even the stones would then do it. But it was going to happen because that's what was uh, prophesied. And as He draw near to the city, He saw the city and He wept over it. Only two times recorded in the Scriptures that Jesus wept in the course of his public ministry. Doesn't mean he only wept twice, but there's only two rec records of it in the Scriptures. The first one was at the uh, gravesite of Lazarus. And the Greek word that is used for his weeping there is for tears just to silently run down your face. If you hadn't looked at Jesus' face, you would have never known that he was weeping at that scene. Here an entirely different word is used for Jesus' weeping. And the Greek word that is used means to sob convulsively. He began to cry so hard over this scene that his, his weeping and his sobbing convulsed his entire body as he wept over the city. And he gives an explanation for his sorrow saying, if you had known even you, speaking of Jerusalem, especially, and then here, underline it in your Bible if you're an underliner, in this your day, the day you had been given, the things that make for your peace, Jesus came to bring peace to uh, them, but now they are hidden 
from your eyes. And you can imagine, we know the whole prophetic picture is going to um, unfold. God knows uh, everything before it's going to happen. And uh, so it's, it's a bit of a speculation. But they were still responsible to recognize Him and to believe in Him. And if they had recognized Him as their Messiah, think about how different Jewish history would be. Uh, it, it, would have, it would have been a peaceful history. But now in their general rejection of Him, not everyone rejected Him, but generally the Jewish population did, He makes His triumphal entry and the city of Jerusalem, they're moving pots and pans in grain and everything is in full order as if nothing is happening. This is a, you know, a tempest in a teacup uh, 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 here. And he sees, he sees that it's so, but they'll pay a price for it. And he said, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave uh, in you one stone upon another uh, again because you did not know the time of your uh, visitation. And here Jesus talks about the fact that uh, as His, as his uh, mind goes out to 70 A.D., as He sees it clearly for what it's going to be when the Jewish nation rebelled against the Romans, and as a part of quelling that Roman rebellion, uh, uh, Titus comes into Jerusalem with all of his legions, and he then lays siege to the city of Jerusalem, and uh, well over a million Jews die in that siege and in the slaughter that followed. And uh, guerrilla warfare went on for a long time between the two groups. It was just a bloody, messy kind of thing that was going on. And by that time, the Romans broke through uh, into the city of Jerusalem. Titus wanted uh, the city to be spared. He wanted the temple to be spared. But somehow a lantern or a torch is thrown into the temple. It all begins to burn. All of the gold that was a part of Herod's temple uh, began to just melt down and fill the cracks between the great stones that, that made it up. And then in order to get to that wealth, the soldiers then knocked over every single stone on that uh, related to the temple mount and, and got the gold out of it, even as Jesus uh, prophesied would be the case here. And all of it uh, because they did not know the day of His visitation. You think about how uh, Jesus must weep over the world today. It's weird to be a Christian in a lot of ways. Because, because, and I mentioned every so often, but our eyes are open. Um, we know history in advance on the basis of prophecy that's in the Scriptures. We know what's going to happen, and, and the, the population around us doesn't because they don't give any weight to, to the Word uh, of God. And, and uh, so here we are, we, we see the terrible price that people pay on an individual level uh, out of a failure to make Jesus the Lord of their life. I mean, even within probably most of our families, we have a number of people that are just making an absolute catastrophe 
of their life rather than turning uh, to Jesus. And it breaks his heart. Everything could change. Their life could be peace. It could become going a completely different direction. And yet, the refusal, all of it's so unnecessary. And that's a part of what's behind Jesus' tears. This is all so unnecessary and, and so easy to, uh, to avert. And uh, I remember a friend of mine who attends the fellowship and this is many, many years ago, but he had, he had a dream of the white throne judgment where Jesus judges uh, everyone who has rejected him as Messiah. And he said, and in this dream, I saw Jesus judging uh, everyone, and he was weeping while he did it. Now, we don't have any record of the Scriptures in terms of that being the case, and nobody should ever look at it and say that it was a weeping in terms of him regretting the righteousness of the decision that he was making. But he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible says. God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And how the sin and the stubbornness and the blindness of this world must break uh, God's heart and Jesus' heart every single uh, day. And so, and one of the things that's weird for me as a Christian in this, this whole vein is, is to live my life knowing what this book says, knowing what it says prophetically, uh, and then to look at the world around me by and large living as if this book was never introduced into human history, as if all of these prophecies had, have not already been fulfilled as a witness to the divine inspiration of Scripture with more prophecies to be fulfilled. And we know that the future ones will be fulfilled because the past ones have been fulfilled. And yet the world goes on every single day as if none of this has happened as a part of history. In other words, no, there's no excuse for any unbelief concerning Jesus uh, in the world from the vantage point of heaven or really from uh, any vantage point and the breaking of his heart uh, related to all of this. And then we're told that Jesus went into the temple and uh, he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus did this twice in his public ministry. He cleared the temple for the very same reasons at the beginning of his public ministry, and he does it again now. Uh, uh, Mark's gospel tells us the very next day after his triumphal entry, he does it the week of, of his uh, crucifixion. And so they had the whole scam going on, the religious leaders. Um, the Sanhedrin was in the, I mean, the, the Sadducees and the high priests were in charge of this whole thing. I remember reading one time about what the, the money-making operation that religion had become among, uh, among the Jews, Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem. The numbers are just mind-boggling. They would be in the comparative billions and billions and untold billions of dollars today. And the scam that they were working was people would come on an annual basis. A family was to come to Jerusalem and three times actually for the three great Jewish feasts. And they were to offer a, an animal sacrifice for themselves and for their family. And they were to take and uh, give a, a Jewish shekel uh, a, a, as an offering as well to the Lord. 
And so rather than carrying these animals from, you know, 150 miles up in northern Israel all the way down into Jerusalem, you would go to Jerusalem and hope to buy one uh, there closer and, and approved by the priest. Or if you did bring your animal that great distance, the priest would demand to inspect the animal and they would always find a flaw with it. This is not without spot, not without uh, blemish, and so you need to buy one of ours. And uh, worse than a used car lot in the old days. I don't know what they are like today. But I mean, they really gouged people. And then to exchange your Roman money into Jewish money, they did the same thing, and they made a fortune off, off of it. And they turned the religion into a business. As Jesus said here, uh, my house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You have turned it into something that is intended to rip people off. And so Jesus clears the temple again. Uh, when He cleared it the first time, they paid no heed to what it is that He said to them, went right back to doing their business, and so He does it the next time. Now when it says, you notice He began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, He didn't drive everybody out that was in, at the temple, uh, just these uh, religious thieves. And then as He was teaching daily in the temple on that final uh, week in the temple area, uh, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people, they sought to destroy him. So, very rational response to uh, a, a righteous rebuke. They see him, this guy is a threat to our power, and this guy is a threat uh, to our money. And if you don't think religion will fight for power and fight for money, you need to read more history. Uh, they'll be as ruthless as anybody can be on it. And, uh, and they sought, rather than to acknowledge the truth of what He was telling them and being humbled by it, they sought now to destroy Him. Let's, let's silence His voice. And they were unable to do anything uh, there at the moment, for the people were very attentive to hear Him. So the very thing that threatened the Jewish religious leaders, His popularity among the common people, uh, was the very thing that, uh, in a, humanly speaking, protected Him from uh, their desire to destroy Him. Now, it happened in those days um, that He taught it, uh, the people in the temple and He preached the gospel that uh, the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, they confronted Him. And they spoke to Him saying, uh, tell us by what authority are you doing these things, namely clearing the temple and, uh, and teaching as you are in the temple, or who is He who gave you uh, this authority. And so they, they demand that uh, He tell them what is, uh, what is his, his theological degrees and what kind of formal training did He have, uh, what uh, religious school of the Jews, uh, Shimei or Hillel, recognized Him to be a legitimate teacher of the Word of God and to do the things that, that He was doing. And, uh, and so that, that's what they're asking him, him for. Who gave you permission to do the kind of things that you are doing? It is interesting, I think, to realize that as they demand uh, this, uh, this kind of thing from Jesus, uh, what board approved you or whatever it might be, that 
uh, and how many uh, men and women that God has used through, uh, through the years out in the mission field, starting uh, churches and all, who endeavored to begin their calling in their life, and they endeavored to begin that calling by being recognized by some religious authority that would then say, they go out in my authority, and they were unable to receive it. Uh, Hudson Taylor is one of those people, one of the greatest missionaries in the history of the church. Charles Spurgeon was one of them. Campbell Morgan was one of them. D.L. Moody was one of them. Uh, the Twelve Apostles were twelve of, uh, of them. And, uh, and, and so, but this was the way that it worked, and sometimes the way that it works today. What are you doing, and who's uh, whose authority uh, do you have here? So they challenge him uh, and his right to do what he's doing and even his right to teach uh, because he wasn't an accredited rabbi and, and didn't have the required recognition of the existing uh, religious establishment. The problem is, is he has already told them what his authority is to do what he did in the temple and to teach as he's teaching in the area of the temple, when you look back at verse 46, saying to them, it is written, my house. He calls the temple his house as the Son of God. My house is a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. He declares the temple to be his house. He's already declared his authority to be the authority that comes but from being divine, from being the Son of God. But they have uh, missed uh, all, all of that, and, and so they came uh, with this, uh, this complaint. And he answered and he said to them, uh, I will uh, ask you one thing and answer me. Now, this is very, very common in certainly among Jewish discussion. If you um, uh, ever listen to uh, a Jewish people deal with a, um, a religious discussion, or if you read this kind of thing, it's very common uh, for someone, if you ask them a question, for them to respond with another question, uh, or to say something different than to directly answer your question. They're going to answer it, but it's going to be in an indirect way, and that's what uh, Jesus does here. I'll, I, I, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? So when John was out there on the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness and he was baptizing people, was he doing something just on his own or was he given authority by God uh, to do that? And they reasoned among themselves and uh, saying, so this little unholy huddle, well, if we say that uh, John was from heaven, then Jesus is going to say to us, why then didn't you believe him? Believe him about what? When John the Baptist declared of Jesus at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So they know if they say, John the Baptist, his authority came from God, Jesus would simply say, then why didn't you believe his testimony concerning me? 
And then they, they said, but if we say uh, John's ministry was from men, he's self-appointed in what he's done, then all of the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John uh, was a prophet. And so they're stuck here. Jesus knew they uh, would be, and so they answered that they did not know where it was from. They knew. They knew. This is politics. In, uh, in religion, and politics and Christianity or, or in their religious system, it's just the ugliest thing uh, when, a, when religious leaders will no longer be straightforward about straightforward questions that are as clear as a bell in terms of how uh, they can be answered. And there's something about this calling where you can become a wordsmith. You can know how to say something and say nothing. You can know how to say something and uh, have people wonder. In your own mind, you think you've said it clearly, and they don't know the slightest idea about what you're talking about. And it's just this ugly uh, political thing. And I, I, and I don't have a political bone in my body uh, related to this. It'll probably get me in a lot of trouble uh, someday. But, um, but I'm glad that I don't. And, and uh, here is they're weighing other things than what has God said and what's obvious here from the mouth of Jesus? And then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority um, I do these things. And so he, uh, in keeping his word, he refused to answer their question. Again, the answer had already been given to them uh, by John. Uh, they were not interested in an honest answer, or they would have accepted the honest answer. They were interested in just uh, trying to discredit him and uh, destroy him. And so all of the authority behind Jesus' teaching and his deeds uh, was the authority of heaven, the authority of being the very uh, Son of God. And then you notice in verse 9 that we're told, then he, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. So now he moves, and careful to notice it, he moves his discussion from talking to the religious leaders, and he turns his attention now to the people that had gathered to hear him teach uh, there on the grounds of the temple. And he, and he gave them a parable, and it's the parable known as the parable of the vineyard owner. And here's the parable. A certain man, and this certain man represents God the Father, he planted a vineyard, and the vineyard represents the land of Israel. And he leased it to vine dressers, and the vine dressers are the Jewish religious leaders who had had Israel entrusted to them for their spiritual insight, not to bring forth a physical fruit, uh, but spiritual fruit from the nation. So Israel, in this position of oversight, spiritual oversight, had been given to them by God for that uh, purpose. They were not given the land. You, you notice they were vine dressers. Uh, the land belonged to God. The Jewish people belonged to God. Israel belonged to God. But they're going to forget that it all belongs to God, begin to believe that it all belongs to them, and they're going to end up fighting with God for control of, of the people and, and control uh, of the land. And so he, he uh, gave the, the responsibility to it, to the vine dressers, and then uh, the certain man uh, went into a far country for a long time. 
Now, it's vintage time, so here the grapes have come in and, and, the, and the, the time of the harvest and all. And so the certain man who uh, planted the vineyard, he owns the vineyard, he sent a servant then to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Some of it would be returned to God the Father, but the vine, uh, vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, uh, God the Father sent another servant, and they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him uh, out of the vineyard, out of the land of Israel. And these servants here are represented by the, uh, are represent the prophets that God continually sent to them over and over and over again, calling them to give their fruit of their love, their spiritual attention uh, to God the Father. And uh, no nation in the world was, uh, in human history uh, just about has been harder on true prophets than the land of Israel. And, uh, and, and at the hands of the common people, not at all. At the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. And then in verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I mean, this is, I've sent them three, and this is how they treat my spokespeople. And so I will send my beloved son, and G, picturing Jesus in the parable, and probably they will respect him when they see him. And when the vine dressers saw him, uh, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him that the inheritance may be ours. Here, these Jewish religious leaders are in a uh, head on fight with God for the spiritual future of the nation of Israel. They're willing to take him on in their progress to take control of the land, take control of the people spiritually, and take that control out of the hands of God. This is how crazy that they've gotten. And so we will kill his son when, uh, uh, when he is sent, and, and the inheritance uh, may be ours. The interesting thing is Jesus is speaking this parable, and, and he turns now and he speaks it, moves from the crowd, and, uh, or, or uh, I'm sorry, he speaks to the people here. The Jewish religious leaders are listening to, uh, to uh, uh, all of this, and, um, and they know that what Jesus is doing here is he's exposing that he knows what's in their heart. You're planning to kill the son. And I'm going to give this imagery here that's going to make it understandable in language that people can understand, the common people can understand in terms of what you're doing. In other words, Jesus tells this parable in a very public setting with, with people who want to listen to him and the religious leaders that are fighting against him on this. And Jesus, in essence, in, in giving this parable, is saying to them, you know what you're doing, and I know what you're doing, so let's not pretend that we don't know what you're doing here. And he exposes it in the parable. And so it, it, Jesus went on in verse 15, they shall cast him out of the vineyard, out of, uh, of uh, uh, the land of Israel, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, spiritually speaking, and uh, uh, so they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And then Jesus poses the question, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
Oh. <laughs> oh. And he doesn't wait for them to answer. And he answers his own question. And Jesus said, He will come. Now you're talking about the Father on the basis of the treatment of the Son. He will come and destroy those vine dressers, those religious leaders, and He will give the vineyard, the spiritual oversight of the Jewish people, to others. And when they had heard that, He's still in the parable. He's not talking about the Pharisees that are standing there. Those that were uh, in the parable, the vine dressers who heard that this could be a possibility in terms of how this would end, that they would end up being defeated and not God in their plans to steal, uh, the, spiritually steal the nation of Israel away from God. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. In other words, that is not going to happen. And then Jesus looked at them as he looks at the uh, Jewish religious leaders here, and, uh, and he said, what then is this that is written? He said, and he quotes from, again from Psalm 118, Messianic Psalm, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, God prophesied in uh, Psalm 118 that when the Messiah came, the builders, the Jewish religious leaders, those in charge of building up Israel spiritually, that they will reject that stone. They will reject the Messiah. But it will have no bearing on the importance of the Messiah. They will not get rid of Him in that way because He has become the chief cornerstone. He will become the chief cornerstone and is when the Messiah came as Jesus did. So here you're on a construction site and the stones that would be lying around, uh, they would look at them and they would determine this is a good stone, this is a stone that's no good for what we're building. So there were stones that were accepted, there were stones that were rejected. And so they, they look at uh, Jesus in terms of a, a foundation for spirituality in, in the land of Israel and really for the whole world, and they reject that stone as this is not something that, that we can use. It's not suitable for this to even be included in the building. And, and here in Psalm uh, 118, uh, the psalmist declares that that stone that they're going to reject, Jesus Christ is going to uh, that they're going to reject, Jesus Christ has become the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone, and especially the chief cornerstone, is the most important stone in an entire building. Not merely because of the weight that it has to bear in terms of the stones that are built upon the top of it, but everything else about that building is measured off of that cornerstone. And, and here is God saying, you, the one that you're rejecting and think is worthless and only worthy of rejecting is going to become the chief cornerstone and He is going to become the standard for what it means to know God and to have a relationship with God and what a godly life looks like. 
And, uh, and so, uh, Jesus has done exactly that. And what Jesus is confronting the Jewish religious leaders w- with, and, uh, and, and I would assume that they are understanding what He's saying, is He's telling them, even in your rejection of Me, you are fulfilling prophecy. You are fulfilling prophecies concerning the Messiah in your own rejection of Me. Can't can't you see that, that this was written of you? You're doing the very same thing. We're three days away from my crucifixion, and this is where you fit in the Old Testament in terms of prophecies. And he's confronted them strongly with it. And then Jesus went on to say about this cornerstone, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And so, this cornerstone is Jesus, and in order to come to, uh, into a relationship with Jesus, in order to become a disciple, it's necessary to fall upon the stone, so to speak, in order… it's necessary to be broken. It's necessary for my will to now become subservient to His will. And, and for my death, a death to self to occur so that a new life can begin in, in my life. So it always requires a brokenness in order to become a Christian, but it always gives way to life. And the only other alternative is, is to one day have that stone uh, fall upon a person and then grind him to powder, speaking of uh, the judgment that will come uh, upon uh, such a person as they're judged and crushed by Jesus Himself at that uh, great white throne uh, judgment. And so, the chief priests and the scribes, uh, that very hour, they sought to lay hands on Him. So that tells me they were getting it. But they feared the people, for they knew He had spoken this parable against them. And so they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, honest inquirers, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him uh, to the power and the authority of the governor, that is, the Roman governor. So uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the other Jewish religious leaders, in their first attempt now to uh, trap Jesus, and that's what they're going to try and do progressively at this point, to trap Him in His words, they don't show up in all their hats and all their robes and all of their religious paraphernalia that would give them away. They got people that look like just regular people that could go to Jesus, uh, appear to be asking a sincere question in the hope that they could get Him to say something against Rome, and then that they might then run to the Roman officials and say, you've got an insurrectionist on your hand over here, and uh, he's guilty of treason. You better arrest him, and then Rome would take care of Jesus for them rather than them having to uh, take care of Him. So this, this was their plan. And so the first question that they asked of Him They said, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and that you show no personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. It's a little heavy on the flattery. That's that's where I I move my wallet into my front pocket when I… Saying one nice thing is fine, but by the time you get to the third, I want to know, are you selling oil futures or 
uh, what, what's happening here. So they come to him with the idea that this is how they're going to appear uh, to be a genuine seeker uh, with a genuine question. But they are so out of touch with being genuine, they don't even know how to pretend it. Uh, and uh, they're as obvious as can be. And so they pose the question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Oh, <laughs> That's a French laugh. <laughs> the worship team understands. So, uh, it was, uh, uh, long story. So, they, um, this is, I don't know how long it took them to come up with this question, but they pose him a yes or no question. And the question is flawless. If the idea is to get him in trouble with Rome or to divide his support among the common people, you could not come up with a better question than this. Because if he says that it is lawful to pay taxes, then it will make Jesus look like he is on the side of the Roman occupiers of Israel and paint him into that political kind of category. But if he says, no, you don't need to pay taxes, they'll have the very thing that they need to then run to Pilate and uh, tell him that you've got a rabbi out here who is telling people not to pay taxes to Rome, which was a very serious business with Rome. And so they just had to, they had, they, we got him. If he says yes, it's this. If he says no, it's this. And you think about how smug they must be on this. You never confront a person openly in front of a crowd unless you have them. And they are very sure they have Jesus. But they don't know what they've walked into the middle of. Sometimes in the course of my 40-some years of being a Christian, I'll hear people say, you know, one day I get to the heaven, I got a few things to discuss with Jesus. <laughs> oh, no, you no, you'd just go up and be happy. You, if you think you're going to set them straight on one or two things that happened to you and where, were you, where was your guardian angel or something, it's not going to happen. Jesus, he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, why do you test me? Okay, let's get this out in the open, what this is about. This is a test. This is not a genuine question. He said, show me a denarius, which was a Roman coin, and uh, uh, somebody produced it uh, for him. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, and on the denarius was a, a stamped on that metal coin was an inscription of, of Caesar. His, his image was on it. And so, show me a denarius. It was produced to him. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And here you have Jesus commending uh, human government as an institution of God. Uh, the paying of taxes and so forth, and, and all of that is, is poorly as those taxes may, may be spent. He's not a political insurrectionist, and we have to be careful to not to paint Jesus in political terms, especially as volatile as politics are today, uh, and, and then outside of a moral and a spiritual identity. And, and so he, he said, uh, render therefore to Caesar the things that are, are Caesar's. Uh, as Christians, we're to be good law-abiding citizens and to pay our taxes. But he didn't stop there. And he said, render unto God the things that are God's. And so, in essence, Jesus is saying, render unto Caesar 
what bears Caesar's image. That is, your money, your taxes. Give it to him. But never give Caesar your life. Render, uh, 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 render un- your life unto the one whose image you bear. That's the only one that's worthy of your life being rendered to. And whose image do we bear as human beings? We've been created, though fallen, created in the image of God. He's saying, give Caesar your money, but never give him your life. Give your life only to the one whose image you bear. That is, to uh, God. And they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and uh, kept silent. Oh, can you imagine? Rats! I mean, we, we had them. I mean, we have the champagne back at the, uh, at the temple. They have a Super Bowl party here. We finally got them caught, and, and it didn't happen, and then they kept silent. The old saying, when you've been put down, sit down. And uh, at least here now, they've got, they've got enough common sense to do that. No, they're not done with that. The Sadducees, they came now to Jesus to take their uh, hand at it. The Sadducees were the, um, uh, the theological liberals uh, of, of the day. They're kind of the opposite in many respects of the Pharisees. So they take their turn now at trying to trap uh, Jesus. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so they were kind of the rationalists of their day or the, the, the modernists of of their day. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in anything they couldn't fully understand, which means they worshiped their mind, uh, which is the worship of self. And why would you worship something that is less than uh, equal to yourself or less than yourself? But that's the way that they did things. They didn't believe in the existence of angels. They didn't believe in the existence of spirits. They didn't believe in the existence of Uh, miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection or any resurrection. Uh, They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. They didn't believe in life after death. And uh, so they were the materialists of their day. So they want to be religious on some level, but without uh, believing in anything supernatural. If it couldn't be explained by natural law, uh, they, they rejected it. And, and it's important to understand this about them in light of the question they pose to Jesus here. And then some of the Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection, that was a part of their uh, error, they came to him and they asked. And they said, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother uh, uh, dies having a wife and, uh, uh, and he, he dies without children, then his brother or his closest next of kin should take his wife, marry her, and uh, raise up a, a male offspring, uh, is what it is, uh, offspring for his brother. And that was the law in the law of Moses, that if uh, your brother married, uh, he died for some kind of reason, in order that his name would not be lost in Jewish history, which was very important to the Jewish people, and in order that uh, the, the widow would now have someone to take care of her in her uh, old age one day, no social security in those days. This was uh, a, a, a right that was, uh, was done. 
And uh, so he dies, and here's the progression. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and, uh, and, and died without children. And then the second brother took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her. Uh, and in like manner, uh, the seven also, and she caught a boat uh, to Crete. That's not what it says there. Uh, see enough of that family by the time you get to there. And, uh, and all of them had her as wife, and, and they still left no children, and then they died. And then last of all, the woman died also. And then therefore, in the resurrection, Whose wife does she become? Because all seven had her as wife. So they're mocking the idea of the resurrection. They're mocking it with this, this crafted thing that they've put together. Because to them, the resurrection would just, if there was such a thing as a resurrection, it would just muddy up the afterlife. Who's going to be married to who in the afterlife? And if there is a resurrection, what's going to happen to these seven brothers in the afterlife? One of them gets her as wife, and the other six are left out for eternity. So they're scorning the whole idea of the resurrection. I have no doubt in my own mind, that's a qualified statement. It means nothing in terms of what you want to believe related to it. But I'm convinced they had tried this scenario on the Pharisees over and over and over again. Because the Pharisees did believe in resurrection. And apparently, the Pharisees were unable to rebut this argument that they made. But they're not dealing with the Pharisees anymore, as they're going to find uh, out here. And Jesus then said to them, the sons of this age, they marry and are given in marriage. Marriage is for this uh, life. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, in other words, to enter into heaven, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And so in this account, in, in, uh, uh, elsewhere as it's dealt with, we're told that we will be like the angels, not we won't be angels, but we'll be like the angels in that angels don't marry. There will be no marriage uh, in, in heaven, uh, in, in, in that realm. There no, will be no need for it, there's no need for procreation in heaven. And however wonderful all of the physical and all of the emotional and all the mental aspects of the greatest marriage in the world, uh, all of that will be surpassed by uh, the bride being with the groom in the heavenly scene, us being there worshiping Jesus, worshiping God the Father, and everything else that, that uh, he heaven entails. So it, it, Jesus is clever here. Uh, the clever is, and I'll just say he's cute here on this. Can you call him cute? I don't know. But I, uh, in, uh, I, I can't pull up a, a better word for it at the moment. But he, in answering here, he speaks about the reality of resurrection. And he speaks about the reality of angels, both of which the Sadducees didn't believe in. And, uh, and, and so he declares that he's, he's fully on, uh, on board with, uh, with, uh, the, uh, with both of those things. 
And so then he goes on and says, but even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. And, and he called, uh, uh, and uh, when he called the Lord, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So in verse 37, Jesus goes back. He forgets the whole uh, one bride for seven brothers routine that they're doing. And now he gets to the core of their issue, and that is their false teaching related to resurrection. And he takes them back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, and he says, do you remember how Moses, when he talked about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God declared it some 400 plus years after they had died and uh, gone into eternity. That the relationship that they had begun with God in this life was continuing on, on the other side of this life. And apparently they had uh, not studied the uh, Exodus chapter 3 verse 6 on this issue, and then Jesus closes the whole thing by saying, for He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all uh, live to Him. And so he proves to them, another aspect of the Sadducees is they only accepted the first five books of, uh, of the Old Testament, the, the, the law of Moses. They did not accept the other books. And Jesus says, that's no problem. I'll take you to Exodus and show you that your teaching on resurrection and life after death is, is erroneous. And, and to, to confront them on that. And again, all of this is being done publicly. So they've come to him to try and divide his support, and uh, he's dismantling them before this crowd in the religious environment of, of the temple. If the Sadducees had been, were honest about things, they would have dismantled their religious institution on the spot, on the basis of this conversation with Jesus. But that's not what they did. And then some of the scribes, these were the copyists of the Bible. They became experts in the Bible because that's what they did all day is they hand-copied uh, copies of the Bible. And they said, uh, teacher, you have spoken well. Uh, and they had to admit it. And after that, and that's the highest compliment you could give a rabbi or a teacher uh, by your enemy. You have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. And then he said to them, so this is going to be a bonus thing, they've come now to confront him publicly, as I've said, and uh, with their questions. And before he leaves this conversation, he is going to confront them publicly uh, on, on an issue for a, uh, 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 how they see it, which is going to, you know, poke a hole in both the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of them in their rejection uh, of Jesus as the Messiah. So he said to them, how can they say uh, that the Christ is the son of David? In other words, the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day and the Jewish religious leaders today they teach concerning the Messiah that He will merely be a man. 
He will be a descendant of David. He will be of the bloodline of David, but he will not be divine. I don't know what you do with Psalm 2 and a lot of other things, uh, Isaiah prophecies related to that, but that's the place that they, that, that's what they believe to this day. He will be a great man, a great king, but merely a man from the bloodline of David. So how can you believe that the Christ will only be that, Jesus is saying? Because David himself said in the book of Psalms, this time going to Psalm 110, the Lord, uh, 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 that is God the Father, said to my Lord, David wrote, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He said, therefore, David calls uh, Messiah here Lord, and there, uh, how then is he merely his son, is the idea. So David writes Psalm 110, and, he dis- and as he writes about the Messiah, he declares the fact that, uh, that the Messiah will be his Lord. David was the greatest king that the Jews ever had, and yet this Messiah will be a greater king than than David was, and so great that David called him Lord. And uh, again here, talking about the fact that he can't be merely human, but speaking to his uh, his deity as uh, as well. And so he posed that question Uh, to them here because he knew that they were rejecting him also based upon his claim to be the Son of God, the basis of his deity. And he shows them from Psalm 110 that all of this has been prophesied to you. I am everything that the Old Testament Scriptures declared that I would be. And then in the hearing, he's not done, he then uh, turned in, in the hearing of the people and he said then, to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best place at feasts. This is what they've reduced religion down to. Uh, Who devour uh, widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, for these will receive greater condemnation. So quite a public conflict that occurs here. And what they had intended to do to Jesus, by the time it was done, He had turned the tables on them completely. And what a very, very uh, powerful picture. You look at, um, okay, how do I talk to somebody who uh, rejects the idea of Jesus' deity? Or how do I talk to uh, somebody who rejects the idea of the resurrection or whatever it might be. And here you look at it and you can go to the same Scriptures that Jesus did with the same confidence that these things speak uh, are, are the Old Testament foundation for these truths concerning uh, Him. And they aren't something that Jesus came up with on His own. They were prophecies that sat for hundreds of years in the Old Testament waiting for the Messiah to come so that He would then fulfill them and we would then recognize Him for who and what He is and claim to be both the Son of God and God the Son. And fully God, uh, fully man, all at the same time in this wonderful uh, mystery that is Jesus Christ. And so we'll stop there tonight and we'll pick it up next time.
in chapter 21. If you sit here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, we certainly want to get that taken care of this evening. We'll be up in front immediately after the service, and we'd love to pray with you to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and begin a relationship with God tonight. You do not want to one day stand in front of Him. We're all going to stand in front of Him, uh, and He's either going to be our Savior or our judge. And you can see uh, that uh, you want to be on the Savior side because there's no uh, talking Him out of anything or trying to explain away anything at that time. Come and become a Christian here today. We'd love to pray with you for that to happen. And if you need prayer for anything, for all of us here tonight, anything this evening, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together and we'll close together.